Okay, I'm going to try this tonight. Good evening and welcome to everybody. It's good to be with you again. Today we had a great time. We rode the train in Strasbourg, something I hadn't done for many years. And of course, growing up here, you know how it is. The locals don't partake in the, in the local attraction very often. I always knew it was there, and I'd been on it a time or two in my life. But now I wanted my children to be able to see it too, and my wife. We had been, we've been there um, once, I think, after we married, maybe. And that's about it. So yeah, we had a good day. It's uh, been wonderful to be here with family and uh, spend some quality time together. Well, as I told you last evening, the subject before us has to do with uh, our job in interpreting the Bible. And the verse in <clears throat> 2 Timothy here kind of alludes to that. Uh, Paul is telling Timothy that, that he had a stewardship. He had a job. He had a number of responsibilities. And one of them was to uh, rightly divide or rightly handle the word of truth. Uh, some people object to that because it sounds like what we're doing is taking God's word and kind of molding it the way we want to. But what this points to is the other half of this coin that I was talking about last night. God does give us something that we need to do. We need to dig in. We need to, um, like Buddy Davis said, the Bible is a gold mine. Where's your pick and shovel? You've ever heard that? We do need to get busy and uh, study and work on things, and here are some of the things. So what we're going to be looking at tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow night is some of the things we need to work on in rightly handling the word of truth. Uh, I might be throwing some big words around tonight. I'll, be, I'll try to explain these the best I can to make it um, understandable. Hermeneutics are the rules or the principles for interpreting the Bible. All right? And it's usually like a set of rules or principles that... We have kind of committed ourselves to ahead of time. Um, we should be thinking about these things, about these rules or principles. What, what set of rules or principles are we going to commit ourselves to? Because there are conflicting sets and rules, or there are conflicting hermeneutic methods out there. So we're going to talk about some of these this evening. And um, what this means, what this has to do with is you know, getting the meaning out of the text. And what we want to do especially is getting, we want to get it out right or get it out properly. Sometimes this is also called exegesis. The word exegesis means getting it out. That's what the, the it means in the original language that it comes from. I think it's Latin. Um, getting the meaning out instead of putting meaning into. That would be the antonym. <clears throat> okay, so first of all, the, no, the normal or sometimes also called literal method of interpreting the Bible. Now, what we're doing here is, again, if I, can, if I can kind of get you to think about this in this way, it's like getting up on an airplane and looking over a larger area. Instead of looking at something closely, looking at something with a wide-angle lens uh, so that we can... Uh, it's kind of like a worldview, maybe, except a world view in relation to the Bible. So we could maybe call it a scripture view, if that makes any sense. Um, so when we, when we study the Bible, the normal way, what we mean by this is that um, this assumes a basic clarity of scripture. That is, when, when we read the Bible, uh, we can kind of read it and see at, on the surface what it's saying 
and that doesn't really take any special training to understand the basic message. It assumes a single interpretation of Scripture. And I think this is a fairly important point in this method. I should say this is the method that I use and promote and want to uh, try to make clear tonight as what I think is the best method of interpreting Scripture. And I'm going to read a few scriptures in relation to this. Uh, 2 Peter ch- chapter 1 and verse 19, uh, Peter says, uh, now he's talking here about, he was talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, how Jesus spoke to the apostles. But he says, we, are, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. Uh, So Peter seems to think uh, pretty clearly, and this is the Bible teaching, that you don't interpret the Bible by yourself or make up your own meaning. Or that's what he means by private interpretation. It's not something you do uh, that that everybody comes up with on their own. So, in study, we we do work by ourselves, right? You can't avoid that. But we need to take a larger, somehow we need to take a larger view uh, into, uh, we need to think about what others are thinking as well. And I think that's where the brotherhood and the congregation comes in to help us. And we, it's kind of like a filter that we sift things through. Um, so when we talk about private interpretation, I think he's saying, he's saying that it's not like Peter can have one interpretation and Paul can have another and John can have another. There's one interpretation, all right? That's kind of the message that I get out of that. And some of the methods that are being used today allow for many different interpretations. And so that's why I'm pointing this out here. There's one interpretation. And again, what we mean by interpretation is not application, all right? There's sometimes a multiple application, but one interpretation. The interpretation is the original meaning and intent, all right? And it's from that that we gain our applications. So the the literal method sees meaning primarily in the sentence and the paragraph, and I should contrast that with, say, the word, the words, some, or the letters. Sometimes people find meanings in smaller bits and pieces than what uh, probably was the original intent. So uh, th- that is, they wrote in sentence structure intending to communicate in sentences and paragraphs. And that's where you get your meaning. It also recognizes that sometimes there is figurative language. Uh, but it always seeks the plainest sense first. And we have trouble sometimes with each other, don't we? When we talk to each other, uh, is he joking or isn't he joking? Did you ever feel that way? How do I take this? Um, we do have that trouble sometimes. With the scripture, we might struggle occasionally to try to figure out, is this a parable? Is this a... Uh, like when Jesus... Sometimes it's clear. Like when Jesus said, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel... Is he saying they were swallowing camels? No, probably not. It's pretty clear, isn't it, that Jesus was using a figure of speech there. It's a literary device called hyperbole. And you can easily recognize that. So the literal method, the normal method, recognizes that there are metaphors, there are figures of speech, 
There are sometimes allegories in the Bible, like the briar bush that came from, where was that story in Judges? And, and uh, that was an allegory. Uh, there are sometimes those. But you recognize it because it's being presented that way. All right? And we do that with each other as well. This is demonstrated very well by the early church fathers. If you read the early church fathers, which I'm assuming none of you do, well, maybe you do. (laughs) Maybe I should get you to raise your hands. Read the early church fathers if you have a chance. They took it at face value because these were their friends oftentimes or friends of the previous generation's uh, people that they had a closer connection with than what we would. And they they were the apostles. They were the men that they had heard from uh, and the situations were a little more relevant to them in their day than possibly they are in ours because it was closer connected chronologically. And so they took what the apostles and what Jesus said at face value. And uh, in the normal way, uh, I might say, the way we read any book. All right? And we don't go to other books trying to find secret codes or messages hidden in them. Again, unless we know that there is one. Uh, but in the Bible, we shouldn't be doing that. We take it at face value. So maybe that will become clear as we go on here. And next, I have, um, by the way, six of these different scripture views, if you want to call them that, hermeneutic methods. The allegorical method seeks hidden and extended meanings in words, and I might add sometimes letters. It assumes additional meaning beyond the original meaning. Now, this is different than than whatever it means to you is valid. That's, that's a different, still a different view. But there's an original, in this, in this view, there's an original meaning, and then there's another deeper, wider, broader meaning somewhere else that's different from the original meaning. Okay? So basically, the mistake that I think is being made here is that there are two meanings, not one. Two interpretations, not one. All right? And this was used heavily. Again, we, we might struggle to identify with this because we, I think I'm safe in saying we don't see this method a lot in our day like they did in other centuries, all right? It was very common in some other centuries, especially the early centuries. The Jewish Christians um, had used a lot of this in some of the early centuries. And Paul and uh, the, the the church fathers that succeeded him had to deal with this a lot, especially in, uh, especially in the first and second centuries. Um, Paul in Galatians, you might remember, uh, he talks about Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and makes allegories, as it were, with them. And some allegorizers or people that use this method will say, see, Paul did it in Galatians. But I think Paul was telling the Galatians, you're doing everything wrong. Paul had nothing positive to say about the Galatians. He's just really, really reading them out. Pretty much from the beginning, he said, I'm so disappointed in you, I can't believe. And he called them foolish. And by the time he gets to chapter 3, he's really getting into his element. And by allegorizing the way he did, he's saying, I could out-allegorize you and use it against you. So I think that's what Paul is doing in Galatians. Um, if you will uh, look into that sometime, that's a very interesting method that Paul uses to prove that their allegorizing really was not getting them very far. But they really, really had to deal with that a lot. It also tends to limit interpretation to scholars because they're the ones that 
work on this the hardest to get the, the, the deeper and the other meaning that goes above and beyond the original meaning and intent. I should ask, are there any questions or comments about any of these? I'm going kind of fast here. Now, this also became the standard sort of in the Roman Catholic Church. And actually, there were several men, uh, namely Origen and Augustine, who employed this method very heavily with Scripture. And that became very common in the Catholic, in Catholic theology to interpret parts of the Bible, large portions of the Bible, as allegories of something else. So... Uh, and for many centuries, these were the common explanations for large portions of the Bible, uh, the ones that came from Origen and, uh, and Augustine, especially Augustine. His, some of this continues on today, by the way. It's not... Is that Mm -hmm. uh, you have to go to school to learn how to interpret the Bible. Yeah. Now, yeah, the, the, the reason I say it tends to limit interpretation to scholars is because, yeah, like the average layman is not going to be looking at the Bible in this way oftentimes. And so the people that are, that are doing this work tend to attract crowds to themselves. And, and then other people say, why? Well, you know, they must be right because they're so smart about this. And I think probably Augustine was a really smart man. He really did work on scripture interpretation a lot. So, yeah, that's kind of what you're saying. Okay, let's keep moving. The mystical method relies primarily on personal and direct guidance from God. Uh, people who rely on this method also disregard serious or... Uh, the kind of study that, I, that we want to be looking at here, and only seeks application. Um, they go straight from the reading to application and skip the study part because they tend to think that God's going to... Um, that you don't, Maybe you don't need to study it so hard. God's going to give it to you through some special revelation. And um, that's why I said last evening that I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to bridge the cultural gaps for you. You need to do that work. Um, that may not be an ironclad rule. I suppose there are times when the Holy Spirit can reveal things to you or to people in difficult situations, uh, say the Muslims that don't have the Bible. Uh, you know, that happens all the time. But in, in general, these people will not want to look at the Scripture very hard, rather that they rely on prayer. There's a lot of, a lot of time in prayer. They're very individualistic, and so you don't see churches and denominations that are called mystical churches and mystical denominations. You don't really hear this. It's usually individuals because they're by themselves. They're hermits and monks types of people. Um, and sometimes uh, famous mystics throughout the centuries have often not really identified with, you know, maybe they stayed in the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, maybe they didn't, um, but they didn't really care. There are a few, maybe, that um, I, I, would think, I would say the most famous mystic denomination, if there is one, is the Quakers, because they relied so heavily on the inner light. But even that, they did as a group, sort of. 
um, they're still largely um, mystical in their approach to scripture study. Uh, the pietists in Germany reacted to the cold, hard um, scholasticism of their age, and they went the other way, and they became kind of individualists too, um, trying to renew spiritual life just by prayer, and, and, and they were kind of mystic, mystical. Um, it's, not, it's not all bad all the time. I want to emphasize this. I'm not just throwing all these out completely. There's almost always a redeeming, some kind of redeeming aspect to these different methods, maybe something that we can learn. Sometimes it's a little hard to find it, but uh, these are Christian views, I would say, all right, with some, maybe some qualification. Joan of Arc may be another one that we could think of. Uh, she was a, a young girl in France who uh, became a conqueror queen of sorts, based on revelations that she got from God on how to do this and who to fight and so on, and that you know, God commanded her to do it. And that's, that's very much a, a hallmark of the mystics. Did she or did she not get these revelations? From God? Well, you know, we may never know in this life, but that is uh, how these people think. It, it is common today, too, by the way. Uh, we do see a lot of this, especially in books that are in the bookshelves. It's, uh, there's a lot of it around. The rationalist method. The rationalists uh, use reason as the main factor in finding interpretation. They downplay divine revelation as a source of scripture. They tend to reinterpret miracles as myths and exaggerations, and kind of following the Greek philosopher model. If you're familiar with how they did, the Greek philosophers found themselves up against these Greek traditions about gods and, and goddesses and, you know, really big, fantastical stories. And, and they said, well, how do we know all this is true? And they kind of demythologized the whole thing and, and made the gods uh, just stories. Uh, they did that for their culture. And that's what, that's what these people think they can do for uh, modern Christian culture. Uh, this was popularized in the late 1800s by several German theologians like um, um, Julius Wellhausen, Rudolf Bultmann. You may never have heard these names. Um, they were uh, the ones who kind of got the ball rolling and that eventually came into other parts of Europe and into America. And today, uh, I think a good example of this, if you want to look around, is Union Seminary in New York City. Um, I don't know what you think about that place. Maybe you never heard of it. I don't know. But uh, they are very modernist in their approach. There's no such thing as divine intervention, actually, or miracles, actually. It's, it's uh, the way the writers saw it in their day. And so God wasn't really revealing them to this. They were interpreting it through their glasses that they had on. And that's how... These stories came about, and they may have, maybe they didn't get corrupted much through the centuries, but that's what, how they saw it in their day, and they're not. So the, the rationalists would say, we've got we to be logical about the scripture. These things don't happen in our day. We know that miracles don't happen around us, and so they probably didn't happen back then either. And so, well, you can see where that goes. Pretty soon you don't even have a Christianity anymore. It's a very dangerous, and a, it became a very popular uh, method of interpreting the scripture for a long time. Unfortunately, these people, well, maybe fortunately, I don't know, they, they lose their numbers. And these 
Denominations that, that approach this become small or extinct. Because there's no more relevance to the Christian faith any longer. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, our faith is vain, Paul said. And that's the thing that usually ends up getting attacked using this method. Then pretty, pretty soon they think Jesus is still in the grave. All right, the dogmatic method. The dogmatic method bases interpretation on existing church teaching or doctrine. It puts predetermined theology ahead of exegesis. So you've already made up your mind what the Bible's going to say when you get to it, right? It often develops as a reaction to false teaching. And so, I, I don't know if you get uncomfortable when you see this or you look around and you think, do we do this? It's certainly possible. And it's, it's not something that's just real far from our minds. And I wouldn't say just from Mennonites or Amish Mennonites or maybe specifically Weavertown Amish Mennonite Church. It's not just something that we might face sometimes. It's something that everybody, all Christians face sometime or other. Because you want to believe a certain way. And so when you come to a passage of scripture, you kind of want to make it fit what you already want to believe, right? So... Uh, dogma kind of rules in that situation. You have decided ahead of time what you're going to think. I think the Pharisees were uh, good at demonstrating this. They had a system in place, and they weren't going to let Jesus come along and tweak it or wreck it for them, and so they resisted him with all their might. Um, the Roman Catholics are kind of in a category by themselves because of their view of church tradition, uh, which is almost equal to the Bible, but kind of not. And so they do use church teaching as a framework for interpreting scripture, but kind of in a different way. But the, probably the most blatant dogmatists in our world today are the Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know how familiar you are with them. They're all, all around us in Western Pennsylvania. I know many of them personally, including their leaders. And it, it started, the movement started in, Pennsylvania, in Western Pennsylvania. We live right in the birthplace of it. And they are a worldwide movement. They assume that all teaching of the scripture is going to be done out of what the Watchtower Society says. And that the only way you can interpret scripture is by what the Watchtower Society has decided ahead of time is going to mean. And they're very explicit about this. Um, you know, it sounds very objectionable on the surface. And to me, to me it's very objectionable. And um, it's very hard to talk with them about this because... And they just you, they take in circles, and they they put you one against five or six of them, and you can't really go anywhere. So um, I don't know if you deal with these people around here. They, they're usually very friendly and uh, people, and we do have things in common with them. But in regards to interpreting scripture, we're very much on different pages. They they don't use the Bible in their church services either. They use the the periodicals that they send around. That's their. They actually had a picture of that in one of their periodicals. They came to our house one time of little children sitting in church holding the Watchtower paper instead of Bibles. So, yeah, that's what we want to avoid here. Um, I'm not sure how we could apply this to us today, but please be careful that you don't put our church's teachings ahead of what the Scripture wants to tell us. All right? I think that's probably the best I could say. And does anybody else have any comments on that?
All right. Next is postmodernism. Um, this one is a little, little hard to pin down, partly because it's much more recent. And whenever you study history, um, it's good to have at least 50, hopefully 100 years of time between you and it so that you can study it a little better. But there isn't for this one. I know Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. Um, this one does seem uh, pretty new, but I suppose there are other times in history where these ideas prevailed uh, in various ways. But this is a big thing nowadays. Um, postmodernism is a reaction to modernism, which tried to put everything into logical and um, scientific categories. So we saw in the rationalist method how, how modernism worked. So if postmodernism reacted to modernism, we might say, well, that sounds good. I'd like to react to modernism, right? But postmodernism is still a little different, and we might still react to it justly. So it puts very little value on theology or history. It emphasizes relationships, diversity, and personal meaning, kind of like the mystics. They do kind of like mystics oftentimes. I'm, I'm not talking about secular postmodernists here, all right? I'm talking about, quote, religious postmodernists, the people that study the Bible this way. Um, they shun final conclusions, and they promote ongoing or continuing debate, more debate and more debate. Find out nice ways to debate this and keep on, and it never stops. Um, it leaves interpretation that is the interpretation of the Bible or a final interpretation or a right interpretation. It leaves that as completely subjective and devoid of universal meaning. That is, it means one thing to one person and another thing to another person. It meant something for the Corinthians back then. It means something else for us today. It, um, and we decide what that meaning is. Everybody decides on their own what that meaning is. As you look at it and you study it, you find out what it means to you. They treat art and literature this way, too. Um, you decide. Uh, you put a piece of art on the wall, what does it mean? Well, we don't know. You decide what it means, right? <laughs> so truth is uh, very relative and subjective. Truth is uh, uh, user-determined in this uh, method. It's not just a... It's really something that's pretty hard to put a finger on because it's, it's kind of like jello. As soon as you try to grab it, it gets away from you. Um, that's kind of what I find. Even the postmodernists can't quite define what they're trying to say as to how they want to interpret the Bible because uh, the moment you try to say something, maybe the other person takes you a different way and their mean, the way they mean, think, they, if they think they know what you mean, how do, who are you to say that I mean what I mean and you're supposed to listen, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. It's very confusing. <laughs> so they, they don't agree with Yes. Without it, uh, yes. Doing any harm to the sure. Yeah, and we're all smile and keep right on going. Yeah, and so the church doesn't have discipline. The church doesn't have theological or um, doctrinal statements in this system. Um, you kind of just have a fuzzy, warm feeling, and everybody comes and is happy. Now, I wanna, I wanna just tell you here that. 
In case you never noticed that cultural pressures are strong. Cultural pressures are very strong. And they're very subtle. And this is all around us. And we think, oh, we live in this nice little enclave at Weavertown in Lancaster County where we're protected from these things. You better guess again. (laughs) This stuff gets into our heads in the most subtle ways that you can imagine. And you might think, oh, we're not postmodernists. You should think about this. (laughs) You should think about this and watch it. Watch it from day to day. This is the one that we probably need to watch out for most in our day, especially you younger people sitting back there. Be careful that it doesn't, that you don't get into this thing of, you know, whatever's good for you is good for you and it might be something else for me and we'll, we'll just kind of accept it and keep going. This, it's very much a part of our modern society, the fabric of our modern society. So sure, we don't live in New York or LA where these pressures are real strong, but, it, but it's, it's, you might be surprised at how how these things come in our doors and into our hearts, um, some of these erroneous ideas, especially this final one. So uh, any questions or comments before we close? All right, thank you. Tomorrow evening we'll be looking at the, the steps in deriving the interpretation of a passage.